this message is going to be a little bit different than what I normally do. Normally, I will um, we'll take a passage of scripture and, and, and look in it, or we'll, we'll package something into a series that, that carries us over several different passages um, all over one thing. This is a, uh, we're, this is a one, one week message, but, but it's not going to be rooted in a specific passage. It's going to be rooted in a problem that's happening in our world today, and, and how can we can we fix that? So, um, so, so be prepared. I'm not going to have you just sit in one passage of Scripture. I'm probably not going to have you turn to Scripture because there's a lot of Scripture that I'm going to hit at the end. But I'm also going to fill your mind with a lot of stats. And my hope today is to make you feel very uncomfortable uh, because when we're comfortable, we don't take action. And when we're uncomfortable and we see a need and a problem needs to be solved, that's when we jump into action. And that's when we say we've got to do whatever it takes to fix this. So let's pray and then we'll look into it. Father, we just, I come to you this morning with a heavy heart. Um, I pray for our world. I pray for our nation. I pray for our families. I pray for our teenagers. I pray for our kids, Lord. And I pray that we would begin to see what the video just talked about, this script being flipped that the world begins to see the church in a positive light, the world begins to see the gospel lived out through the church, and that we can make a difference for your name. So, Father, teach us this morning how to do that. Amen. So we do have a problem. This problem is a culture problem. It's a relationship problem. It's a family problem. It's a parenting problem. It's a political problem. It's an education problem. And the list goes on and on. This problem permeates every piece of fabric of society. And we've got to find a solution for it. And what we're doing is not working. And I said I, want, I hope it makes you uncomfortable. And, that, and, and that's why. Because what we've been doing is not working. And I, and, I, and I say this because I've got almost two decades of experience living this out daily on the front lines, seeing it not working. What I've seen is that we are losing generation after generation for Christ. And I got struck this week as I was studying for this, I realized how old I really am. I'm going to be a little self-transparent. I turned 42 in less than a month's time. And this side of the room was like, wow. This side of the room was like, poor baby. But I felt old because I realized that there's no longer two generations beneath me. There's now three. When we look at societal generations, I was like, oh, wow. People I went to high school with are now becoming grandparents. Um, That's an eye-opening experience for for me because that's a first. Um, But we're losing generation after generation, and we're we're losing them faster and faster and faster. And I'll show you a bunch of stats this morning that are backed up by research so that you can see just exactly how drastic this is. Let's start with the Southern Baptist Convention. The Southern Baptist Convention is the entity that we sit in, um, that we support financially through the cooperative program. Um, doctrinally, it's who we line up best with. We, they, don't have to tell, they don't tell us what to do because we are an autonomous church, but it is a, an organization that we align with. And the Southern Baptist Convention for a long time is the largest 
denominational uh, entity in the world. Look at their numbers. Since 2006, we have lost 2.3 million members of the Southern Baptist Convention. And since 2019, we're down nearly 436,000. You continue with that, attendance in the Southern Baptist churches is down 15%, and baptisms in the last year are down to their lowest level since 1919. Now, it's easy to point out some certain issues about how that, why this has happened, okay? It's easy to say that the pandemic has affected church attendance and obviously has affected baptisms. And that's not to put any, um, to, to, to diminish any effect that the pandemic has had. Uh, because that is a very tangible, true thing. The pandemic has crushed many churches. We are very blessed. Our church has come back in numbers. Many churches have not even opened their doors and will never open their doors again because of that. We're losing more churches than we are planting. And just last year, the Southern Baptist Convention planted over 500 new churches. And more than that, closed their doors. The pandemic is a big issue. But there's other issues that have affected it. Unfortunately, every time, it seems like every time a leader of the Southern Baptist Convention opens up and says anything, it starts a controversy. It starts a controversy rather than uniting. And, and, and that might not be their intent. Their intent is good. But we live in a time of fractured relationships and people wanting to, to cause divisiveness. And that is hurting our churches as well. But it's not just the Southern Baptist Convention that's having the problem. Let's keep going. The most recent Gallup study shows us that, the American, that Americans' membership in houses of worship has decli- declined and dropped below 50%. That is the lowest level, the first time it's ever dropped below 50% in over eight decades. Then let's look at generations. 43% of millennials... Millennials are those that are born between 1981 and 1996, so I do not fit in that. I also don't fit in Generation X, so I'm, I'm kind of an orphan out there when it comes to generations. If you're born at the last half of 1979 and 1980, you really have nowhere to go. But, but millennials are those that are born in 1981 to 1996. Uh, they don't know if, they don't care, or they don't believe that God exists. 43% of millennials don't know if, don't care, or don't believe that God exists. And the next generation, those that were born between 1997 and 2012, we call these Generation Z, or Gen Z for short, have little to no trust in organized religion. Little to no trust in These are kids. They shouldn't even know what religion is. Organized religion, let me, let me say. But that's, you know, we have, we have this mindset of, of, well, I'm a Christian, but I don't go to church, you know. I, I don't want to be part of organized religion. I don't want to be part of, part of a structure, but I believe. Um, well, the stats are showing that that's not true. But then we also have this other thing that's happening. We see, we're seeing a decline across the board. Um, we're seeing well-known Christian names come out and begin the process of what's called deconstructing their faith. How many of you have ever heard the term deconstructing their faith? It, it, it's, it's, it's becoming more and more, pro, more prevalent. 
um, especially on social media if you're, if you're heavily involved in social media. Um, and, what, and what it means is when I say the word deconstructing, it means the deconstructing or the taking apart of one's faith and leaving the church. So you have these people that have been believers. They have been Christians. Many of these are prominent people that are coming out and saying this. And they have lived a life of faith that now are questioning their faith. And in questioning their faith, they are starting to take apart their faith to find truth. Which to me makes absolutely no sense. Because for me, my faith is based in truth. The truth of the scriptures. But for them, and I want to respect them, they are deconstructing their faith. They're taking it apart. And it's a buzzword that has, has jumped on social media. Uh, people are deciding to announce to the world that their faith no longer matters to them. They want to explore different types of, of, of thinking, uh, that, that nothing they believed was true anymore. And so they must deconstruct things that they have learned to find the truth. And I remember about 12 years ago, I first heard of this concept, and it wasn't called deconstructing the faith, but uh, a, a, a guy that I was spending some time with, um, he was our pastor at camp, he talked to me about what he called Starbucks Christianity. And that was where you could go and you could pull from all different kinds of faith and make your own Christianity out of it. Just like if you go to Starbucks, you can get an um, iced mocha peppermint frappuccino with soy milk. and ha- you, know, you can just customize it however you want. And that's what they were doing. He was seeing in trends that, 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 that the, the generation at the time, the, sort of in the millennials, they were creating a Starbucks Christianity, picking and choosing whatever they wanted to make whatever flavor fit them. And now they've taken that. When that doesn't fit, now they're deconstructing it and destroying their faith. And, and, and as that has risen, so has another term. And due to the political climate in our country over the past few years, um, and what many people have said has they, that the hijacking of the term evangelical for political gain, we have seen a new word come out, a new term called exvangelical. Has anybody heard of this term? Exvangelical. An exvangelical is a person who has left the evangelical Christian movement. This includes people who have left to go to more progressive Christian denominations, which would typically be a more liberal doctrinal theology, and those who have left Christianity altogether. They're moving away from what the text tells us, what Scripture tells us. They are exvangelical. Many of them don't believe in God anymore. Let's take a look at some of the prominent evangelicals, ex-evangelicals that are out there today. Excuse me, my allergies are really bothering me. Some of these you might recognize, some you might not. Um, Kevin Max is the most recent one that has come out just in the past week or so. He was one of the original members of DC Talk. So if you grew up in my generation, uh, you were a Jesus freak with DC Talk. Um, he has... Uh, come out as an ex-evangelical. I'm going to share something that he has written in just a minute. Um, Abraham Piper. Um, if you know who John Piper is, one of the leading uh, foremost uh, pastors in the reform movement, um, has written a ton, a ton of books. Abraham Piper is his son, has over a million followers on social media as he destroys Christianity. Has many followers as his dad does, if not more. And he is going to town on everything that his dad has preached for years. Josh Harris, he's a former pastor, and he wrote the book back when I was a teenager called I Kiss Dating Goodbye. This is 
honestly the only book I ever threw out the window as I was reading it because I didn't like reading a book on not dating uh, when I was a teenager. But he has come out in recent years and he has given up his pastor and he has given up his faith. As we continue, Marty Sampson, he's a former Hillsong worship leader. Many of the songs we sing uh, come from... from <coughs> and he has left the faith. And then Professor Paul Maxwell, I mentioned him a few weeks ago. He was a professor at Moody Bible uh, Institute, and he has deconstructed his faith and is now an ex-evangelical. There are many, 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 many more that are coming out in these ways and, and, and saying these things, and it is, it is influencing so many people because we live in a celebrity-driven culture. We live in a society that we put more stock in what a Hollywood celebrity says about how we should live our lives, about what policies we should have politically, about how we should treat people than actual people who have sanity. Listen to what Kevin Max, the, the, the former member of DC Talks, said when he publicly declared that he was no longer an evangelical, but this is about his political beliefs as an ex-evangelical. I'm anti-war, pro-peace, anti-hate, pro-life, pro-LGBTQIA, pro-Black Lives Matter, pro-open-mindedness, anti-narrow-mindedness, pro-utopia, anti-white nationalist agenda, pro-equality, pro-vax, pro-music, anti-one-percenters, pro-poor, pro-misfit, pro-Jesus, etc. Do you see the Starbucks in that? Now I want you to hear me very clearly. I am not preaching on politics today. This is not a message about what type of politics you should follow. This is not a message about who you should vote for. It's a not about liberal or conservative-leaning beliefs. It's not about left or right. All of those things are part of a greater problem. And it's a problem that was addressed in 1 Timothy 4. The, the Apostle Paul addresses in 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 5. And look what it says. It says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from food that God created to be received, with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. What Paul is talking about here is a term called apostasy. It's turning away from the faith. And scripture tells us there is going to be a day, and it says in the last days. And we can have all sorts of debate about whether we're in the last days or not, but know that from the time Jesus ascended into heaven after the death, burial, and resurrection, we're living in the last days. Because scripture tells us no one knows the time nor the hour. Amen. And so we are living in the last days, and in the last days we are going to see people leave the faith and follow false teaching and be deceived. And this false teaching is not just happening to turn people completely away from Christ, to change our culture, to change our minds on what is a man and what is a woman. It is happening to say, twist this just a little bit. And if you pray it, you will get it. 
if you pray for money, God's going to give you money. Prosperity theology. They start to twist and turn and deceive you to where all of a sudden your faith is not a biblically-based faith. It is a culture-based faith. It's how the enemy gets a hold of you. And it's happening right now. People are leaving the faith. I just showed you some examples of it. We're losing our generations. We are losing our kids. And I've watched it happen for two decades. It's easy to say this is happening in the big cities. It's easy to say it's happening in the metropolitan areas that deal with issues and influences that we might not deal with in rural Texas. And let me tell you, there's truth in that. There is truth in that. Having just moved my kids from a suburb of Austin to here, I don't see a lot of the things that we saw there. And I am so grateful for that. Let me let you know that. I am so grateful for the community that we have here. Because my kids aren't exposed to a lot of the things that, that were, were, they were exposed to there. But we have to be very careful when we say that. That we're protected, that we're sheltered. That our kids aren't going to be exposed to the thinking of the world. Because one of the reasons that we are losing our generation is because now... They have technology that we did not have. The first time I ever logged onto the internet, I was a freshman in college in my dorm room. I think my kids were on the internet before they were born. They have access to everything in their hands. If you have a television in your home, if anyone in your family has a social media account, if you have access to the internet, The ideals that the world is teaching are already in your house. And I want you to hear me say this also. I'm not telling you to get rid of those things. Okay? I don't want to drive around town today and see a bunch of TV. Well, if you want to do this, because we might want a new TV. But don't put your TVs on the side of the road because the church is calling us to get rid of those things. Not. Because then we don't know what the world is doing. We can't shelter ourselves in that way. But it's there. Every time you turn on TV, if you've had kids in the last 10 years and you've turned on a kids network, good Lord, the messages that are being taught to them through that. It is crazy. So why are we losing our kids? Why are we losing our kids? Well, for the first time in history, We are now a post-Christian generation, a post-Christian nation. Barna tells us that only 4% of Americans adhere to a biblical worldview. A country that was founded on faith and religious freedom, only 4% of Americans adhere to a biblical worldview. About 10 years ago, I remember... um, the city of Austin, Barna every year does a, 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 a ranking, a, a study of, of the post-Christian cities in America. And for a long time, it was very easy to know where the post-Christian cities were. They were either in the northeast or the far west and northwest. Right? It would be easy to know that. For a long time, that was the case. And I remember the first time, it was about 10 years ago, that the city of Austin was officially designated a post-Christian city by Barna. And I looked, at it, I looked at it this morning. In 2019 was the last one that came out. They were number 25, 
the 25th most post-Christian city in America, the highest ranked one in Texas. But I remember when they first were initially designated, the conversations that, that I had with my friends and my, my colleagues and stuff, we, we were just like, oh man, Austin got put on there. Austin's a post-Christian city. What, you know, doesn't surprise us, but, but they're there. And what does that tell us? That means it's coming for us, but it's going to be a long time before it gets to us. Even though we're in big cities at the time, it's going to be a long time before it gets to us because Austin is weird. Right? That was very easy for us to say 10 years ago. Very easy for us to say 10 years ago. Well, guess what? It's here. In 2019, Barna looked at an area that they deemed the Waco Temple Bryan area. I'm still a little curious about how they fit Bryan with Waco and Temple, but they're all together, okay, for, for statistical purposes. And they, they looked at this area, and then they compared it to the number one post-Christian community in America, which is Springfield, Holyoke, Massachusetts. And they also compared it to the least post-Christian metropolitan area in America, which is Charleston, Huntington, West Virginia. Listen to these stats. Those that have not read the Bible in the last week, in Springfield, Holyoke, Massachusetts, 87% said they had not read the Bible in the last week. In Charleston, Huntington, West Virginia, 58%. In the Waco Temple, Bryan, Texas area, 67%. Two-thirds of those polled in that area had not read their Bible in the last week. When we all have the Bible on our phones now, it's more readily accessible than ever. In Springfield, Holyoke, Massachusetts, 60% had never made a commitment to Jesus. In Waco, Temple Bryan, 37% had never made a commitment to Jesus. And in Charleston, West Virginia, 22%. Had not prayed to God in the last week. And I find this very interesting that they'll pray to God, but they won't read the Bible. In Springfield, Holyoke, Massachusetts, 47%. Waco, Temple Brian, 27%, and Charleston, Huntington, West Virginia, 25%. That was not that bad. But I can tell you that, that it's not uncommon for people to pray to God even if they don't believe in him. Those that disagree that faith is important in their lives, for the Massachusetts area, 41%, the Waco area, 25%, and the West Virginia area, 13%. And those that do not believe in God, the Springfield, Massachusetts area was 11%. The Waco Temple, Bryan, Texas area was 6%. And the West Virginia area was 6%. We are not that far off from being right up there with the number one most post-Christian area in the nation. And it's happening, happening, happening. And Gen Z, these are our nine to 24-year-olds, 15 years. It looks bleaker and bleaker. We don't have the statistics because, as much as we do for the millennials because they're so new. But listen to this quote, and this is from a, a man named James White. He wrote a book called Meet Gen Z. He says, the most defining mark of members of Generation Z in terms of their spiritual lives is their spiritual illiteracy. They do not know the basics of Christian belief. They do not know what the Bible says. They do not know the basics of Christian belief. 
or theology. They do not know what the cross is all about. They do not know what it means to worship. Well, why would they if the generation prior to them doesn't care, know if, or care if God exists? Why would the next generation know anything about it? Listen to the things that are turning them away from church. The problem of evil and the existence of suffering is the largest deterrent to the belief in the existence of God. 29% of millennials that were, were surveyed said the problem of evil and the existence of suffering is the largest deterrent to a belief in God. And I've heard that statement many times. How can God let bad things happen to good people? Church hypocrisy as a reason for avoiding faith, 23%. Church hypocrisy as a reason for avoiding faith, 23%. And the history of injustices within the church, 15%. Now I want to stop here for a second. And I think 10 years ago, those last two numbers would be a lot higher. And the reason why I think those numbers aren't as high as they, I would have thought they would be is because our culture has been anesthetized, made numb to the actions of the church. Scandal after scandal after controversy after controversy after fallen ministry after fallen ministry has made them say they're no different than the rest of us. And so that's not a deterrent anymore because they just expect it to happen. They expect, not because we're fallen people, but because they've seen it happen so much. They don't come in and say, I want to be part of this church because they're just like me. They come in in spite of that. They expect it to happen. Them not coming to church is not about what the service is like. It's not about what kind of music we sing. It's not about how cool the pastor dresses, because that's obviously not why they're here. Um, It's about a systemic failure to preach, teach, and live out the gospel in a way that transforms the nations. So let's get rid of the negativity for a minute, and let's look at how do we turn things around. How do we flip the script? I'm going to give us some practical steps that will help us flip the script. And maybe, just maybe, this little local church in Mason, Texas, can become on the leading edge of reaching our future generations. What do we do? Well, first off, we have to speak the gospel, not about the local church. If it's evident that they recognize that the church is going to fall and, and fall short, We can't speak about the church. They don't care what we're doing. The gospel is first and foremost. We need to teach them and we need to preach them and we need to show them that God loved the world so much that he willingly sent his only son to live a perfect, blameless life so that Jesus, only Jesus, could carry that sin to the cross to be beaten, bruised, broken, crucified, and murdered for each and every one of us. And in that death, our sin was taken with him so that three days later, when Jesus rose again, death, sin, evil, and the enemy was defeated. We need to speak that, and we need to live that first and foremost. And I can't tell you how many churches in my life that I've sat in that I never heard those words spoke. 
we must preach and live out the gospel to these people because they don't care what we're doing as a church if we aren't speaking, living, and breathing the gospel. Because no matter what we do, no matter what programs we have, no matter who we help in the community, if we're not doing it with the love of the gospel, it doesn't matter. The church has let them down way too often. Way too often. But the gospel doesn't let you down. The gospel saves, it resuscitates, it restores, and it redeems. And look at what scripture says about it. In 1 Timothy 1.16, it says, But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. We need to be that example that is being talked about here in 1 Timothy 1.16. 2 Corinthians 4.2 says this, But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. We're not going to do underhanded things. We are going to be transparent and we are going to preach the gospel. Because that's what they want. I've talked to, uh, about it a, a few weeks and, 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 and we're going to start to reveal these out very, very soon. Our strategic plan and, and one of the things that was in our top ten was to love authentically. And because we are a world that desire, desires authenticity, authenticity because they've seen too much fakeness. I remember having a conversation with one of my pastors one time um, with several other staff members, and the, and the conversation was, was who we are as a church. How can we promote who we are as a church? And he was like, let's promote authentic worship. And he's probably 20 years older than me, um, so that would put him not quite boomer, um, I don't know what that next generation is called. Um, he's not a Gen X. He's um, between that. And, uh, and those of us that were in our 20s looked at him and were like, no. And he said, why not? And I said, because the moment you say it's authentic, it's no longer authentic. It has to be authentic. It has to come across authentic. They have to see it authentic. And so we have to be an authentic example of the gospel. Second Timothy 3, 2 through 6 says, For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, inappeasable, slanderous, with self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godly, but denying its power. Avoid such people. That sounds like our world today. That sounds like a lot of our churches today. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins, and led astray by various passions. We have to be real. We have to acknowledge our faults. We have to tell people that, yes, we are going to falter. We can't live up to the expectations that the world has given us, but the gospel does. And we must preach and speak the gospel first before we share anything that our church is doing. Because they don't care what your church is doing. Change their life. The next thing you gotta do, and this one's gonna be hard, this is gonna be very, very hard, is you have to be prepared to apologize. You have to be prepared to apologize because unfortunately, whether you've hurt them or our church has hurt them, somewhere, somehow, someone themselves or they know has been hurt and hurt bad by the church. 
And we have to be prepared before we can even talk to them to apologize for the church. We're not apologizing for the gospel. Hear me say that. Because there's nothing apologetic about the gospel. But we are apologizing for the actions of our churches that have been led by fallen men and women. We have to apologize because unfortunately they've been hurt by the church or they've seen the hurt the church has been done. Think about these things that are just in the news in the past two weeks. Spiritual abuse, legalism, oppression, sexual abuse, infidelity, financial scandal. All from leadership of prominent ministries in our nation. Leading the news. And people are seeing it. And we have to go and we have to apologize and say, I am sorry that the church has not followed the example that Jesus Christ gave. We have to apologize for the scandals, but there's something else we must apologize for. And this is something that over the past few years has really burned, burned brightly in my heart. We have to apologize that we as the church did not teach like we should. We have to apologize that we lost our way. We have to apologize as a church for trying to be too cool and get as many people there as we can. What do I mean by this? Because I'm going to tell you, I grew up in a church, and I love the church I grew up in, that was part of the seeker movement. And I think we did some things really well on top of being the seeker movement. When I say seeker movement, it was all about sharing the gospel with people and getting them saved and getting them there. And that was great. And we did some things on the back end of that that I think we did really well that set us apart from some of the other churches. But what I'm about to say is about a generational wrong that happened. If you grew up in the 90s, if you're a teenager in the 90s and you were part of a youth group in the 90s, that youth group needs to apologize to you. Because the leaders of those youth groups, and they did not know any better. They were just following what they could. They sacrificed the teaching of the gospel and teaching us what is in the Bible. And not just the words of the Bible, but what the Bible actually says and how we apply it to us. They sacrificed that in the name of Numbers because they had youth pastors who were being pressured by their church to justify the money that was being spent by the number of kids that were there. They had parents that were telling them, my kid's not having fun, let's have more fun. So they came up with the craziest games they possibly could, the nastiest stuff they could have ever done um, game-wise, dirty, messy, all that stuff. They sacrificed discipleship for name recognition. And now you have my generation leading the church, leading these ministries, and they're scripturally illiterate. And so how are they teaching this generation if they don't know it themselves? And so we have to apologize to that and say, I'm sorry, we are going to do better. We are going to teach you the word and how to live out the word. We're going to build on a foundation of scripture and the gospel. And I'm sorry that that happened, but I'm going to grow right alongside with you. Because culture has taken over because we've started fighting on things about things that scripture is very clear on. 
because we don't know him. There's a spiritual war going on. This is not a war between us and them. And I want you to tell people that. I'm not at war with you. It's a spiritual war. Ephesians 6.12 says, we now see, or, sorry, Ephesians 6.12 says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. It is a spiritual war that is going on. And look at this quote from Russell Moore. He just left the uh, Ethics and Religious uh, Liberties com- uh, committee uh, for the Southern Baptist Convention to go take a uh, position with Christianity Today. He says, now we see young evangelicals walking away from evangelicalism, not because they do not believe what the church church teaches, but because they believe the church itself does not believe what the church teaches. The presenting issue in this secularization is not scientism and hedonism, but disillusionment and cynicism. We're raising generations that don't know the beauty that's within this book. We're also going to war where we shouldn't go to war. I want us as a church to be, for people to know who we are because of what we are for and not what we're against. We are for the gospel. And when we are for the gospel, that makes us for biblical marriage. That makes us for the sanctity of life. That makes us for taking care of the poor. That makes us for taking care of the needy and the homeless. That makes us for these social justice issues that culture has hijacked from us because we are for the gospel. And when we are for the gospel, we do those things so that we can share the gospel. Matthew 18, 7 says, Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. We do not want to be that church that leads people into temptation. We want to be that church that leads people to Jesus Christ. And I think this is one of the best quotes of it all. Dylan Smith, um, who is a Gen Gen Zer, says, If the church wants to reach the next generation, justified or not, you'll need to apologize to most of the next generation first. Regardless of what you've done to them, if you lead with an apology, what is that going to say to them? Wow, they really know where I'm at. They really understand me. They're trying to learn. So we've got one final step that we have to do, and this is going to be the hardest one of all. Because it's easy for us to, to speak the gospel. It's easy for us to apologize. But this is where it really hurts is we have to find, fuel, and fund the next generation. We have to find, fuel, and fund the next generation. I'm 42 years old, 41, almost 42, aging myself. I don't understand my kids. And I worked with teenagers for almost 20 years, and I don't understand them. It's hard for me to find them, let alone fuel them. We have to recognize that the greatest influence on future generations 
is the future generation themselves. Because we live in a society today that is what could commonly be called the influencer generation. We've got TikTok, we've got so, uh, Instagram, we've got Snapchat, we, uh, Facebook and Twitter is bygone because all of us old people use that. But on there, they have what's called influencers that get paid to change people's minds about stuff by doing a dance. I'd blow up the internet if I got on TikTok and started dancing. They're influenced by those that are around them. And so for us to reach the next generation, we've got to go into our community and find the kids that influence. And we've got to share the gospel with them and get them to fall in love with Jesus. We've got to find them. And it doesn't matter where they're at. Because I love this quote from Russell Moore. The next Billy Graham might be drunk right now. Think about that. You might not talk to them because of what they do in their life. And God might have in store for them to be the next Billy Graham. Because as one of Russell Moore's uh, mentors says, who knew that Saul of Tarsus was to be the great apostle of the Gentiles? Who knew that God would rise up a C.S. Lewis, once an agnostic professor, or a Charles Coulson, once Richard Nixon's hatchet man, to lead the 20th century church? These were unbelievers who, once saved by the grace of God, were mighty warriors of the faith. Who is the next great leader of the faith that we're afraid to go find? And then when we find them, we must fuel them. We must train them. We must teach them. We must disciple them. Ephesians 4, 12 through 16, we must equip the saints for the work of the ministry to build up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried out by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, rather by speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, for whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. We have to train and disciple those that we find. Because if the greatest influence on the future generation is the future, future generation itself, we've got to train that, that generation. So we've got to find them and then we've got to fuel them and we've got to fund them. We've got to give them the resources to do that. And this is where I'm going to make this church feel very uncomfortable. As I began working on our budget for next year, something came very apparent to me. And I recognize that there have been some, some, some reasons for this. But that doesn't mean we can't change this going forward. And I hope this is the statistic that shocks you more than anything. For the 20... 2021 budget year. We have a budget of approximately $178,000. Less than 3% was dedicated to under the age of 18. Less than 3%. And so if we're going to reach this future generation, we've got to fund it. 
And where it gets really hard is as I've looked and I've looked hard at our budget and I've talked to some, some, some people about it um, in our church and some, some people I respect outside of our church just asking them questions. There's not a lot of bad in our current budget. There's not. So what does that mean? It means we've got to grow our budget. For us to reach the next generation, we've got to be willing to invest, to sacrificially reach into our pocketbooks and say, that generation needs Jesus, and I'm going to help it happen. Here's some money. Because we talk all the time about you can give, (coughs) excuse me, You can give your time, and you can give your talent, and you can. And I'm not saying that at all. I am not telling you you're not worthy in that. But I want to be realistic as well. Most of us are not under the age of 30. And if that's the generation that's going to reach the generation, then the best thing we can do is give the treasures that God has given us to reach that generation. Be sacrificial and fund the great things that we can do here to reach the future generations. Because what would it look like if we had a whole bunch of Bible-believing disciples of Jesus under the age of 18 running around this town? And then we send them off to college fully prepared for what they're about to face. The future of the church is now. And it's in Generation Z and Generation A, which is those that have been born since 2012, which we have no data on yet. But here's the promising thing. The one thing that comes out of Generation Z that has been seen that I put hope in is out of any other generation prior to World War II, I mean, since World War II, since the generation before World War II, Gen Z is the one that is most open to a relationship with another generation. They'll sit down and have a conversation with you. Doesn't mean you're going to influence them fully, but somebody might influence them and then they might say, you're a little smarter than me because you're older. Fill me in on this. So we have to be open to that as well because they're open to it. We've got to be open for them to come into our doors. And when they come into our doors, we've got to receive them and say, we want to love you, we want to teach you, we want to share the gospel with you, and then we want to empower you to go change the world. And they will do it. Because if you look at what's changing the world right now, it's their generation. And they're not changing it for the good. So we're not going to have a typical response time today. What we're going to do is I want to have a time of prayer. I'm going to ask the band to come up, and I'm going to have a time of prayer. And I just want you to self-reflect. What am I doing to solve this problem? What am I doing to solve the problem of losing generation after generation? Am I stuck in my ways? Or am I open to doing some things that we need to do? The things that no one else is doing to reach the generations that no one is reaching. Let's pray. Father, 
this is a problem. This is something that is destroying our communities right now, Lord. And I pray that our church would be a church that rises up and says, we want to change this. We want to help solve this problem. We want to put every effort that we can into reaching the next generation in a biblical way to teach them your truth, to teach them your doctrines, to teach them the things that will build a bedrock of of faith in our communities, Lord. And show us how to do that. Give us sacrificial hearts to help find, fuel, and fund the next generation. Father, give us hearts that say we are all in for our kids because they mean that much to us. Because we know that we and they mean even more to you. So Father, speak to us through this time. 